0: we are living through times that are remarkably trying and where it seems like ignorance is making a phenomenal effort to sort of assert itself over the consciousness of humanity but i don't think that's different than what it's always been it's just the scale is so much more uh, significant and the access is so much more immediate you know but if you look at the, you know what the what the uh, crusaders did and and the, what the what the inquisition did and if you look at what the you know, the the, uh, Ottoman Empire did, you look at what the Brits did in Africa, you look at what the French did in in Asia. I mean, this kind of contest, you know, between what would be the forces of expansion and kindness and the forces of darkness and greed is not new. How you did, how you did. That was
1: the voice of Eric Kaufman. And today we're discussing leadership breakdowns. Why do they happen? what is the cause of them and if they do happen how can you rebuild a structure that makes sure that you ensure and instill trust and also creates an environment where everybody feels safe enough to be themselves he has three ways to do that he says wisdom He says love and he says courage. And I guarantee you that you're going to look at wisdom, love and courage very differently after this episode. So I'd love you to check out the episode, but I'd also love you to engage with his website, which he leaves at the end of the episode. And you can fill in your pieces of information so that you can see and assess how leadership is being broken down in your environment, in your family and in any particular place where you find leadership pertinent. Okay, one more thing. A lot of you have been asking me if I'm you know, still traveling or going to different places to speak. And the answer is yes. I'm always taking the book on tour. I'm always um, speaking to different uh, places to do workshops and, and things like that. So if you want me to come to a city near you, please let me know. My uh, contact information is on my website, tyroxson.com, T a y o r o c k s o n. T-A-Y-O-R-O-C-K-S-O-N.com. You could also find me on social media at And So I'm very, very available and willing to meet you all wherever you are. All right, uh, enjoy the episode and please let me know what you think about it. And leave your reviews, your five-star reviews on iTunes. I love reading them, please. <laughs> all right, enjoy the episode. Welcome everybody to another episode of As
2: Told By Nomads and today's guest is Eric Kaufman. Now, today, Leaders around the globe face an array of urgent challenges, ranging from climate change, economics, and geopolitics. All these things that are holding us back all stem from several behaviors that we've had throughout humanity. And Eric is going to be, you know, diving into that. But one of the things that I really was fascinated by, um, you know, um, our guest today is that he's been in the world of C suites for two decades, and he's now sharing his expertise with the masses to help solve our world leadership crisis. He's someone that is very interested in conscious leadership and he wants to share just different ways we can cultivate leaders and aspire to bring the best out of our executive teams as well as people that are aspiring to be leaders of people. So today we're going to be talking about how to uh, really find that internal breakthrough that leads to the solution and I'm really excited to get into that.
0: Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you.
2: The pleasure is mine. For me, the most fascinating thing about guests when I have them on a podcast is really to have them chart out their journey to where they are today. What was the spark that got them to you know, say, this is what I want to do, and this is how I'm going to do
0: it. So could you enlighten us on that? I'm going to start at the beginning. Uh, the beginning is my mom and dad. Uh, my mother is <clears throat> born in South Africa and my father is born in Israel. And uh, they met when my mom went to visit Israel. I was uh, consequently born in Israel, where I lived until I finished, uh, I think, ninth grade or so. With, with by then my three brothers, so my my mom and dad, and four boys. And uh, when I was when I finished ninth grade, my mom decided that she didn't want to live in Israel anymore. So we emigrated to South Africa, of all places. And uh, I finished high school there and. And um, didn't really feel like I fit in there in any way, shape, or form. And so I had a childhood that was uh, multicultural, um, you know, and, uh, and multi-geographical, as it were. And um, we lived with people from all around the world. And so um, it was always fascinating for me that, you know, humans, humans were fascinating to me. <laughs> you know, how we think, how we relate, what we believe. Um, and then when I finished high school, I came to America and I came here to go to college and within, and my family was still living in Africa. And so I I came and it took all of about a year for me to get kicked out of college. So that was my first significant accomplishment as (laughs) an, Wait, what did you do? What did you do? Well, the problem is I didn't do anything. And so the the college (laughs) doesn't look fondly upon having no grades. Uh, turns out they have, you know, standards and, um, Um, Well, you know, I mean, I came here, it was 1985. I was 18 years old. There was no supervision. I I was in a foreign country. I didn't even speak a great English. I certainly knew nothing about how to, uh, you know, study in a university. Uh, I grew up in a town that had, you know, 2,500 people. I was at a university campus that had 35,000 people. I was way out of my league, you know? And so I, um, um, uh, you know, the Grateful Dead, Pink Floyd, you, you know, pot, mushrooms. It was just an amazing sort of learning experience, none of which amounted to grades for college. (laughs) So, so they, uh, they booted me out. You're gone. Now you're wondering how the hell does that, you know, (laughs) relate to being in the C-suite, but it relates because now I'm 19 years old and realize that, uh, I've really messed up. Um, and that I wanted to stay in the States. And that if I wanted to stay here, I'd have to stay as students. If I wanted to stay as student, I had to get a grip. Literally, I realized I have to get some control. And so um, that form of control wasn't clear to me until I I was introduced to meditation. And so, you know, before I was even 20 years old, I was introduced to Zen, um, to Zen meditation and and the Zen tradition. And... uh, um started practicing when i was 19 um and have have not stopped since then but it it included uh a very intensive you know 15 year practice in a with a teacher in a community um in in that period i I went back to school graduated school went to work at, uh, at uh in corporate i went to work at 3m then i went to work at corning some very big american companies and um as I was working through there and I had these dual track, right. I was intensely in the corporate space, you know, heading towards management and leadership and senior roles as best I could. And I was deeply in my spiritual practice and, uh, and those two, um, sort of danced together as, as I, as I wove my way through there. And, and sort of the common denominator in both spiritual practice and leadership is humans, people you know, how we function together, how we operate together, how aware are we of one another? How do we collaborate? How do we cooperate? How do we reduce our own ego need and be able to uh, give ourselves to a bigger mission? Um, And that became sort of the fascinating, uh, the fascinating light that I wanted to follow most intensely.
2: Would you say that the world has lost its spirituality or Zen or its um, mindfulness,
0: its ability to be present? Um, That's a really... Um, sort of provocative question because, from one perspective, the world never had it to lose it. The reason that we have all these traditions that are usually inc- require great effort over many years to become present is because we don't have it as a matter of sort of uh, training to begin with. <clears throat> so, to say that the world has lost its presence, um, you and I can take a stroll through history and find little to no evidence that it was, uh, you know, remarkably present at any time. Um, And so I think, Mm. you know, every tradition that has lauded the best in what it means to be human, whether it's Judaism or Islam or Christianity, whether it's Sufism, Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever tradition um, is a tradition that requires that we rise above our sort of egoic, self-identified state, the sleepy consciousness, as they would call it in most uh, most uh, circles, and become present. And so I don't think the world's lost it. Uh, I think that um, <clears throat> the layers have gotten deeper that you have to dig through. What we've done is we've stimulated our attention to the point of uh, of addiction and distraction in a way that certainly our forefathers didn't suffer from, right? I mean, my grandparents didn't have to wade through 60,000 bits of data a second because of all the devices that they're into.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's also something that we we forget when we think about history. We always say history uh, repeats itself, but it's it's interesting when I think about the world, I think about the adverse relationship that the world has had with anything different. So I always say use your difference to make a difference. And one of the reasons I like to point that out is because I don't think throughout history we've, being able to relate to anything we don't understand. So different gender, we had to find this power dynamics, different race power dynamics, different um, orientation power dynamics, any different language, whatever, religion. And it was always this rush to say, if it's something I don't understand, we need to stamp it out, we need to normalize it, we need to civilize them. Now you you mentioned South Africa being one of the countries you grew up in. Um, I am Nigerian and uh, Nelson Mandela, late Nelson Mandela, was one of my biggest influences for getting into this work. Him and um, Oprah Winfrey. But I remember when he was leading South Africa out of apartheid and reading up on just the history of how segregation and racism had been so organized, based on how you looked and how you sound and your heritage. And I, I, I see that now in today's leadership crisis. If you speak, uh, if you say. In, in the sense that people aren't really striving to understand who people are at their core, and they're already rushing to make judgments and legislation uh, based on these things. But that's just my perception. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
0: I, I think we're on the same track, Tyo. I think that um, to me, this is this is at the quite frankly at the heart of the challenge that I call leadership breakdown. Is that the you use the word different, right? so to to the mind, and i'm I'm not even going to talk about culture or tradition or or, or heritage. I'm just going to talk about human experience. Different is dangerous. right? And so what we seek is the known, the familiar, because that's how we can stay safe. And so different, at some level, signifies dangerous. And I think that the um, the the interconnectedness of the world, you know the experience of leadership these days, is blown out of the bubble. I don't know any leader, any executive of any organization that can live in a homogeneous bubble, uh, even if they just want to get their supply chain working, you know, let alone their marketing, let alone their, uh, employees, you know, there's the, the diversity, uh, of, of not only sort of race and gender, but of culture and ideas is, um, Is simply a fact that once we could ignore because we lived in more um, heterogeneous or or rather homogeneous kind of environments but now we can't so so the the leadership breakdowns that show up are these breakdowns where (laughs) there's a there's a term i love it's called psychosclerosis psychosclerosis think think of arteriosclerosis right that's the hardening of the veins and it leads to sort of heart failure psychosclerosis is the hardening of the mind and it literally it leads to spiritual failure creative failure and ultimately you know meaningless existence and psychosclerosis this hardening of the mind is manifest as you know not wanting to challenge what we know to be true yeah and that is that is that is a death knell for any organization it is a uh it is the sort of Preemptive disease that is going to lead to the breakdown that uh, that we're witnessing.
2: You know, the, the, I'm just just thinking here and, and chuckling here because it it's been going on, like you said before the call, for centuries. This has been, you know, reason why we've had dictatorship. This is the reason why we've had, you know, the the pair, you know uh, crusades, like you said, and every other sort of conflict. But One of the reasons why it might be, I guess it might seem more alarming now because of digital media, as you said, but then I'm now curious as to what we can do to fight against the crisis, especially when people feel like they're powerless and they feel like there's nothing they can do because the people in power, quote unquote, um, are doing things to marginalize as many groups as they can.
0: Well, I mean, I feel powerless. I mean, I'm I, you know there's there's you know to sort of date ourselves a little bit right now in the moment, there's, there's an impeachment process going on. Right. and I, I'm watching it with sort of you know, I feel powerless when I watch it. You know, I feel like there there are there's a there's a ridiculous farcical play that is unfolding that doesn't really seem to hold my interest at heart. And I feel there's not much I can do about it. So I I relate to that powerlessness, you know, at at a at a sort of um, national level, uh, at a global level. You know, what do we do for the climate? You know, what do we do about the uh, sort of migration patterns and migration patterns and climate are connected. People are emigrating out of Africa and sort of South and North Africa and Central Africa because there's been droughts and famines there for, you know, decades. And so i think that you know the the sense of difference that we can make uh has to be somewhat personal and then local and then national and then global right few of us will have to play on the global level all of us will have to play on the local level and so the question is how can we uh, reverse some of these potential breakdowns and real breakdowns by what we do day in and day out as leaders right whether you're a young person leading, whether you're an old person who's been leading for a while or you know, older, with whether you're established or upcoming, uh, you can be a more um awakened, more what I call conscious leader and uh, and deal with these breakdowns and how you affect people around you. Because that's that's one of the that's one of the sort of prerogatives and one of the responsibilities of leadership, is that you are dealing with and affecting people's lives. If you're a leader, you are by definition engaging with and through people to accomplish meaningful things. And so affecting them, not just to produce the results, but how, how you go about it is the difference-making experience that we can talk about sensibly and have power over.
2: Well, well uh, let's talk about it, because you, you're someone that understands the mind of the person in the C-suite and what they need to do to become the best leaders that they can
0: be. So if you could, well, what are those things? You know, it's it, if we're going to talk about uh, how we make a difference, then we're talking about sort of this topic that I'm so passionate about. I call you know conscious leadership. I'm I'm not the only one who calls it that, by the way. There's a there's a movement of us in this conscious leadership space, and um, and sort of maybe I should give a little sort of understanding of what conscious means, right? And 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 sure. sure. <laughs> yeah, we we have six or seven hours, right? Um, yeah. But we, we can approach this from a, you know, spiritual, or from a neuro, neurological, or from a social, from a cultural. But I think I want to approach it from more of a kind of a, a practical perspective as regards to leaders. And and I was thinking about um, uh, last Friday, my wife had a medical procedure. Um, nothing, sort of nothing, nothing um, serious or dangerous. But she had to have uh, general anesthesia, and so. Friday morning, we went to the hospital and she was admitted and they hooked her up with IVs and they, you know, in short order, gave her kind of a mixture of Versed and uh, I think Demerol and boom, my wife is unconscious. So then, you know, the procedure is over. I meet her back in the room. She opens her eyes and she becomes conscious again. And I say to her, how are you? And she goes, oh, I'm a little groggy. And so the first sort of element of this idea of conscious is that you're aware. Right. What are you aware of? The first thing you're aware is of yourself. I'm self-aware. I am. Right. So that's the that's the the initial um, manifest experience of conscious. I am. It's also the beginning of the challenge, because I am means that I am separate. How are you, Shana? I asked my wife. I am feeling XXX. Right. She was feeling groggy. And so as soon as we recognize that we are separate, and this happens at a, at a very young age, we also begin to realize that we have some, uh, we're inadequate. We're not c- completely able to achieve what we want to achieve. We're, we're, we're a little helpless and we're vulnerable. And so we have this sense of identity. I am that now is precious. I am. I want to keep this. I am. And I cannot sustain myself alone. So I must cultivate ways to care for myself. And so we develop an identity and a methodology and a series of strategies and methods to engage with conflict and inadequacy and relationship. And we call that the ego, right? And that is the sort of formative experience of every human. We have this identity of, we have a conscious sense of self and that becomes separate from, and it's in that separate separate that your, your comment about difference starts to be an issue. Now this is all humans experiences. But then to be more conscious means that we have to go beyond that just self-identity. So what is beyond that? There are things, right? My car, my chair, my dog. Those are things beyond me. There are um, people, right? My wife, my family, my peers, my my lovers, my friends, my co-workers. There's ideas, you know, communism, socialism, democracy. Those are ideas. And then there's the interconnectedness, how all these things kind of hang together. So the first kind of step of conscious leader uh, is that you have to realize that all these breakdowns are coming from this place of not being aware of how all these things are interconnected. Being self-centered, self-serving, self-focused is the issue at the heart of these breakdowns. And if we look around at all the tensions and troubles, all the challenges and fights, all the struggles and and, um, strife, is because myself, I, for myself, want something that you, for yourself don't want, so now we're either in competition or in contest. So the first piece of of uh, of wisdom <clears throat> that a leader has to uh, sort of take on is that we're all interconnected. It's not just things, ideas, and people outside of us, but it's all the interconnection. It's cause and effect. It's one thing creates the other. it's the you've heard of the butterfly effect, you know the butterfly. So it flaps his wings in the Amazon, and that's a tsunami in Japan. You know, you and I are breathing the same air. If you're in Japan and I'm in San Diego, we're still all connected by breathing the same air in the same atmosphere. Uh, that's not a practical const- uh, um, not a practical step, but it is the first piece to understand to move ourselves beyond the self-centered difference-making. Way of being is that we're interconnected. So let, let me pause there. I mean, that's a lot of download, but you know, does that does that yeah. Yeah. resonate? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, you, you think about consciousness. You think about awareness. First of all, I mean, I, I, for, so I, I do a lot of meditation and mindfulness as well. And before you can even become, um, you know, I guess conscious or anything, you, you have to really be aware of, of the things that are going on. I'm not sure if it's the other way around. But it happens with the work I do with diversity and inclusion. And when I'm talking about biases and unconscious biases, I often have to allow people to, first of all, bring certain things to their consciousness and then have them you know, make it aware to themselves and then recognize the habits and how they sort of let their brain protect them in that sense. And I and I think that, that type of system stems its way towards every sort of behavior we have today and what we all of all of a sudden legislate this culture. So yeah, I do understand.
0: So so then if 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 the leader is willing to first understand this interconnectedness, then how does it play out? Right? What 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 do we do? Um and from again from, from my experience and perspective, the challenge is in what we call this this ego, mm-hmm. right? This it's the egoic. So I, I'll make a distinction between the egoic Focused leader and the conscious focus leader, right? And the so the the the, e, the ego driven leader leader is looking at I'm separate, I'm vulnerable, I'm somewhat inadequate, so therefore I have to satisfy myself. And 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 I might expand to sort of my team, right? Or I might expand to my company. Uh, I think from a conscious perspective, the conscious leader sees the interconnectedness of all that, right? Um, it's an unresisting awareness. Uh, present moment reality and interconnectedness, right? I am aware, my awareness grows to include and hold more and more and more. And then it manifests in sort of what I write about in um, in Leadership Breakdown is, is my new book coming out is uh, these three dimensions, these three what I call vectors of uh, of conscious leadership, which are wisdom, love and courage. And so we can sort of unpack that if you want. But wisdom, love and courage is sort of the three vectors of how you how you implement and interject this work of conscious leadership into the difference that you're making in the world.
2: No, or no, no, no I'm very curious. So wisdom, love, and courage. All right, so wisdom. What's um, what's the component of that?
0: Um, so wisdom is the, um, sort of, I, the, the way I define wisdom is going below the obvious, below the surface and beyond the obvious. You know, that's what I'm really – interested in from a wisdom perspective, right, is below the surface and beyond the obvious. So wisdom is seeing how things hang together, how things are connected. um, And the way that we can really bring wisdom to practice, and it sounds like, you know, you're deep in this already one is presence. And you've talked about, you know, being present and having presence. um, Because that's sort of the first step, right? How, how, how else are we going to play this game if we don't really know what game is afoot? Um, and so I'm curious from your perspective, because you've got a mindfulness and meditation practice. Right. I'm, I'm just curious, like how you, if somebody says, what does it mean to be present? What what does that mean to you as a guy who's got a practice? So for me, I, I, the way that
2: I try to remind myself to be present is to be aware of what's going around me, aware of how I'm breathing, aware of how my feet feel on, on, on the pavement, aware of the people around me or how the room smells or what's going on. And it's all those just triggers with, with my senses that just remind me uh, to be present and also to be, I guess, in the moment and grateful. Because sometimes, you know, with my mind running the way it is, I'm already always thinking about the next thing or the next meeting or the next response. And if I just remind myself, oh, this person's mouth is moving, I should probably <laughs> listen <laughs> or. This is a room, <laughs> or the, like now, sirens are playing right now. I am in New York City, you are giving an interview. Just those little reminders. And, and and the same thing with meditation, it's you remind yourself of your breath, right? So even when your mind strays away, just get back to that constant. You're breathing in, this is how it is, and you're breathing out. And that's the, that's something I've done. I, I can't say that I'm an expert yet or anything, but I have noticed that in the moments that I do practice those moments, I, I do tend to stop blowing things out of proportion and just realize you're here now, just be here,
0: so. That's beautiful, I love it. And 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 I think if you and I just stop right now and people say, okay, well, they're walking away with, with how to be a more sort of effective leader who's doing less, who's contributing less to their personal breakdowns and the team breakdowns and the organizational breakdown, be present. And so be present, it means what exactly, I, I mean, exactly what you said, right? It is, it is neither the past ruminating on what happened, nor the future fantasizing about what's going to happen. And if, and if, you know, I'm working with executives all day long, where are their minds attention? Where's their minds attention? It's, oh, I can't believe this happened. Ah, man, that sucked really badly. Or what's going to happen when? And, and, and to be fair, analyzing the past and learning from it, is hugely requisite for any kind of good leadership, right? The last thing we want to do is screw up the same way we screwed up before. I mean, that's dumb, right? So there is no, there is no, um, there is no conflict between being present and looking backwards. Similarly, looking forward, right? If you're going to strategize, plan, create your OKRs, your annual goals, your your operating uh, objectives, whatever it is, that's just basically good leadership. You want to project forward. So there's no, being present doesn't mean that you you can be present when you're projecting forward. You can be present when you're reflecting backwards, but it's when you're simply not really at choice Mm. and ruminating and you're fantasizing and you're preparing and you're getting ready for a response and you're, you're still lamenting about so-and-so does such and such and such, or you're thinking about the news that was two days ago, that's not being present. And so what? So what does it mean to not be present? Why is that a breakdown? um so i so, so here's a um kind we're, of we're all hypnotized into this idea of being crazy busy you, you've heard right. that i don't know, maybe that's just a west coast term but you know no 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 i i have heard of it yeah <laughs> we're crazy busy right yeah and i i, I quite frankly i take a sort of great offense to that term because you can be busy without being crazy you know and to sort of affirm to myself i'm crazy busy is just an invitation for perpetual insanity we don't need more of that you can be busy. And so Sarah is a, is a, a, a very you know, senior executive. She's a COO in this company. Remarkable, brilliant, awesome woman. I love her. Crazy busy. She's always crazy busy. And so, um, so we got into a conversation saying, well, you know, what, 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 why are you so busy? Oh, I have so many meetings. Well, how many meetings do you have? I have like 30 hours of meetings a week scheduled. Wow. <laughs> I know. And so you still need to get work done, right? I mean, you still need to actually like be at your computer and crank out work. Right. And I said, are these meetings working really well? Oh, no, they're horrible. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Sarah's not alone, right? Um, Why are the meetings horrible? Well, we we just – we have, like, the same conversation, four meetings down the road, and we just don't get to a conclusion. That's not just Sarah, right? I mean, this is something we see rampant. Why aren't you getting to a conclusion? I don't know. All right, let's investigate. The whole – sort of premise of why I'm sharing this particular anecdote with you is that what Sarah realized and what we found out together is that the conversations have very low quality of genuine exchange. Um, In other words... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. Sarah is so focused on what's next, she's not really paying attention. And everyone else in the room is worried about how Sarah is going to react and what's next for them, they're not paying attention. So everybody's talking, but nobody's really effectively communicating. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's true. They're not present. Sarah started practicing, you know, presence. I'm going to show up at the meeting. I'm just going to focus here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the best I can to not go forward in time and not go backward in time and just really listen. Really listen. Um... In the first week of doing that, she cut out two and a half hours of meetings. In the first week of the 30 hours, she cut out two and a half hours of meeting. By the end of a month, she had removed somewhere close to 12 hours of meetings from her schedule. Because she didn't need to meet again about stuff that she wasn't, you know, she she learned how to be present, she could just resolve it in the real time, in the real moment by paying attention, and everybody had more time. How many corporate, you know, hours are being wasted because people are not paying attention? Millions, millions upon millions upon millions of hours a year, just squandered, pissed into the wind because people are not present. So that's the first piece of wisdom, right? Pay attention. We all have a limited inventory of attention. And whatever we spend our attention on, wherever we deposit that attention, it is non-refundable and non-transferable. We have an inventory of attention that can only be placed in one place at one time. And if you don't pay attention in the meeting, you're paying attention to something else. That means that you're not really engaged in the meeting. As a leader, showing up disengaged, that's a rampant disease that everybody can speak to. If you're a leader and you're showing up disengaged, stop doing that.
2: <laughs> pay yeah, attention. And, and because that creates a culture that permeates down, and in you know, if you're someone with a certain power, or a certain influence. Reminding people to just be present and saying, "Hey, okay, I know you have this deadline, but let's let's stay focused
0: on this. Um, that can sort of filter yeah, downward. Keep our attention in the present in the real moment, here and now. there is okay. there's there's ample evidence, both anecdotal and scientific, that you need to slow down to speed up. Slow down, meaning, you know, take the pace out, t- take the take the crazy out of busy, right? And just, be attentive to the conversation, to the person, to the topic, and things amazingly get resolved in much quicker paces.
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is all part of the wisdom, right? So then, that's all part then, of wisdom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, there, then there's love. Then there's love. Yeah. Um, love, and I, I don't just mean sort of compassion or kindness or care. I mean love. You know, love. Well, I mean, and and and. and I don't mean sort of office romance (laughs) or sexual encounters I mean that there is the sense of deep caring connection I love my wife I love my daughters I love my puppy (laughs) you know (laughs) and 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 when my car was brand new I loved my car my relationship is 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 a little more distant now three years in right Um, and and when I love something what does that mean it means that I care for it. I give it attention. I tend to it. I want the best for it. I, I shower it with my presence. I notice it. Isn't, isn't that what we do when we love something? Yeah. Yeah. You pay attention to it and you, you show that it. you care and you care. And that's what I said in my car, three years in, it's got a little dent, a little scratch. I'm like, mm, I'm ready to, <laughs> 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 you know, I mean, it's, it's a really cool car. I really love it, but not as much as I used to. Um, um, and in the workplace, you know, what we do is we, I don't know, it's, maybe it's not as rampant as it was even 20 or 30 years ago, but the term was be a professional. What does it mean to be a professional? It means be hard-hearted. And why do you have to be hard-hearted? I, I was uh, coaching a president of a university, and uh, he had this reputation of being really cold and distant. Dr. So-and-so was really cold and distant, um, all his, all his deans and vice presidents were sort of always, you know, <laughs> that, that that's just how we very perceived them. And and it, it really was an interesting uh, conundrum because I had these remarkable intimate conversations. I mean, I don't know, executive coaching is a is a very personal, intimate exchange, and I knew that this was a man of great empathy and genuine compassion. And so, why was he perceived as being distant and cold hearted? And I realized why. And he realized why. He's the president of the university. He's like, you know, he's the CEO of that that organization. Every encounter that he has, and this is true of every leader, right? Especially an executive leader, especially a CEO. This is one of the things that CEOs share regardless of industry um, or, 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 uh, or market, right? Every person that the CEO interacts with wants something from them. Right. The employee wants something, the vendor wants something, the supplier wants something, the clients want something, the board wants something, the investors want something, everybody wants something. And so if you're in that position where every single day, every single conversation with every person is transactional and it's an effort to get something out of you, you're going to start being quite a professional, right? And create professional distance. And so love, which is this deep sense of connection and movement towards and empathy and bonding can be uh, very easily lost in the corporate. And that's for CEOs, but it's also for professionals, right? To be a professional means someday as a leader, I'm gonna have to fire you. I might have to, I might have to discipline you, right? Someday right. we might have a disagreement and and it hurts too badly to be in this connection, so I'm just gonna be cold-hearted. Does that make sense?
2: No, it makes sense. In, if you're even thinking about I guess this is what comes to mind. When you think about leadership, as the bigger company grows, the further the distance uh, is, um, you know, from the, you know, entry-level position to the CEO position, whether it's because of meetings, investments, or whatever things happen. It's several things are competing for uh, attention. And so when things are competing for attention, you, you might forget to love the things that you're supposed to love the way you're supposed to love them. And so... When you don't do that, you 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 don't recognize some of the quote unquote red flags that are making people feel like they're part of your company, and that tends to be where a lot of the trouble starts from. Because the trouble stems from not being who you say your company values are, and when you
0: story away from that, um, it becomes dangerous. And then there's the leadership breakdown, like you say. Hundred percent. And and so so here, so I'll give you an example of David. David's the CEO of a of a, of a large consumer goods company he really does practice love. He loves his people. And how do you know, how, how do people know that he loves them? Um, he loves them because there's, you know, two things that he does on a regular basis. So there's an easy way to stay in that sense of connection. Cause that's what love is, right? It's connection. It's bonding. And the sort of, The obvious one, the low hanging fruit that anyone can practice to be a more conscious leader, to reduce the breakdowns, to create this more sense of intimacy and connection is gratitude. You know, gratitude. What happens when I show gratitude, right? If I show, if I'm, when I'm grateful to, when David is grateful to, you know, Annie, what is David doing in that moment where he's grateful? First of all, it's not just that he's writing her a letter at the end of the year, right? Forget about it. You know that, that's not gratitude. That's 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 compliance with tradition. Gratitude is something that happens in the moment. So David is working with Annie. Annie does something, you know, that that is um, uh, really helpful and and creative. And he pauses and he says, Annie, the way that you dealt with this team uh, was. Massive. I mean, just the way that you diffused the tension and got them to actually overcome the the differences between them and work together. That was that was pretty remarkable. I really appreciate that. Man, that didn't take much on the one hand. On the other hand, it takes a tremendous amount because what David had to do is not being so self-centered, ego stuck, that he's only noticing what's important to him and noticing Annie and articulating to Annie what she did. And Annie feels what? Seen. Heard, affirmed, alive, important, loved. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: All key ingredients. You know, people want to be seen, heard, and understood for who they really are. And so if you can love them for that or create a space for that loving environment, uh, I, I think we'll we'll have a lot of interest in Anecdotes, or you know, to to be able to figure out what's what's the problem with today. And this, by the way, the reason why I really wanted to have you on the show is because oftentimes I get asked this question about why are we in this position, why can't we be inclusive? What's the problem with the world? And I do really think it stems from these habits that we create in our personal lives as well as our professional lives because these are the, the things that end up factoring into governments or any other things because everybody acts like the people that make up governments are not people. You know, They act like the people that make up companies are not people. People that make up our families are not people. People that make up schools are not people. Every institution is comprised of a group of people, but we haven't necessarily been trained the right way to interact with people. And so when you become a leader, you're gonna act the way
0: you've been programmed. So, it's interesting. A hundred percent, I talk about, oh, sorry, there was echo for a second. I talk about um, you know, I invite executives to work with me, and human beings show up. Yeah. <laughs> it's always human beings. It's always human beings. and and if I was to sort of draw a pie chart of the of the time spent in the conversation with with executives and leaders and CEOs and what the topics are, there's probably um, there's probably ten or fifteen percent of the conversation is on strategy, on goals, on long-term, you know, thinking long-term for the organization. Maybe another 10 or 15% is on operations and, and sort of operational execution excellence. Good 70% is about people. You know, there's, yep. there's, there's a you have to have sort of a long-term view and strategy. You have to have operational excellence and execution, but it's through and with people. And so in particular in leadership, particular executive leadership, uh your everything you're doing is through and with people the the ceo of an organization is accountable for executing things that they don't have the actual means of production personally to do so they are dependent if you think about it and you're the ceo of a company you are dependent on your people on their engagement on their skill on their passion on their execution on their intelligence and on their connection to get things done it's true it's always people. true yeah
2: yeah and, oh, well, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well,
0: I, w- I was, you know, at the heart of this is, is as I mentioned over and over, is this this construct of the ego, you know, this, this separate sense of self. And there's three, I'll mention this, and we can come back to, to courage if you want to go to that. But, right. you know, there's kind of the three impulses that, that each of us has as an ego, and it's just so basic, and we all sort of, you know, you and I and my kids and, and our friends and every listener who's going to tune in is dealing with the same stuff. There's three basic kind of... Uh, drivers right that pull and push us along the way i have to you know i want to be liked i want to be right and i want to have might Hmm. i want i want to be liked. there's this need for connection for relatedness for a sense of uh, familiarity and engagement with other people i want to be right right i want to i want to demonstrate my competence and express my skills and talents and show my smarts and and i want to have might i want to have the, the ability to control and have power and have some autonomy in what i do and so this this kind of i want to be right be liked and have might is this relatedness and competence and, and autonomy we want connection and expression and control and those are sort of the seeds of our ego and and um when we can sort of rise above that that's where wisdom love and courage sort of goes beyond that right it's, it acknowledges it and then goes beyond that and that's how we can exercise more than just for me but for us, and then increasing that us consistently.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. No, I, I like how it's broken down into simple simple reminders like that, but yeah, okay, all right. Well then, courage. This is one of my values, by the way. Uh, so I, I always love hearing about courage. How can we practice courage?
0: So um, my simplest definition of courage is walking towards what you would rather run away from, right? walking towards what you'd rather run away from. And so I I guess at the outset, I got to make a real distinction between courage and fearlessness. So there's conversations about be fearless. And um, other than a great marketing slogan, it's complete fantasy. Our neurological, biological, physiological system is wrapped around self-preservation. Fear is baked into our neural system. The basic mood of our state is fear. So... To be fearless would have to require some kind of a lobotomy, and uh, I don't recommend that. Um, <laughs> but to be courageous is really available to any human beings that want any human being that wants to switch out to to switch themselves on to a full life. I mean, to your point about the value of courage, courage, you know, Aristotle says is the first of all values without which all the other ones are not available, not possible. And so. Um, and so courage isn't – so So from a, from a leadership perspective, I'm particularly interested in, uh, you know, the the three sort of big fears that are attached to this ego, right? So to be liked, to be right, and to have, to have might uh, means that I want to have, you know, I want to have connection, and I want to have the ability to express myself and show my talents, and I want to have some control and autonomy. The fears around that is the fear of, you know, if I can't – if I won't be liked, it's the fear of rejection. So every one of us kind of deals with the fear of rejection. If I won't have – if I won't be right – then it's the fear of humiliation, right? I'm 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 going to be embarrassed. You're not going to be able to really see me for who I am. I'm going to look stupid. Right. If I don't have the ability to have might, to have power and control and autonomy, then I'm going to fail. I'm going to be powerless. And so, fear of failure, fear of humiliation, and fear of rejection are the three pieces that I see over and over and over and over. Not just when I look in the mirror or sit in meditation, but in every single executive that I work with. It's the fear of failure, the fear of humiliation, the fear of rejection. And so the courage then isn't the courage to jump out of an airplane or, you know, you know, I saw a piece in the news the other day. Some dad in New Hampshire strangled a coyote with his bare hands. I'm like, Jesus, that's pretty cool. Um, But that has nothing to do with a boardroom. You know, Um, it's really humiliation, rejection and failure. And so there's three types of courage that every leader has to really learn to to play out the the courage to uh, the courage to commit, which is the opposite of fear of failure. Right. I'm going for it. The courage to care, which is the opposite of the fear of rejection. I'm really going to I'm really going to uh, move towards people and the courage to speak up which is the opposite of the, courage, of the fear of humiliation or embarrassment. And so those are the pieces of courage that I want every executive to really focus on, right? How can I commit? How can I care and how do I speak up? Because it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to commit, to really throw yourself in where there's uncertainty. And by the way, if you're a leader, if you're an executive, uncertainty is the soup you're swimming in. Well, I don't know if you swim in soup, but it's the sea you're swimming in.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people can swim but yeah, just the sea you swim swimming in. Um, <laughs> That, that is so true, by the way. And even this idea, obviously, we have a culture, of, a growing culture, a cancel culture. I'm sure you've uh, heard of that where people are really afraid to be wrong, right? And so because of that fear to be wrong, they don't want to end up losing their bottom line or say the wrong thing because they fear it will save face and then it's going to be detrimental to them. And so even if they see something that's wrong, they wouldn't want to say it because they don't feel it's their
0: place or they're afraid to say it. So but why are you afraid to say it, right? I mean, there, right? And so, imagine that you're the leader, and there's a bunch of people around you who are not sharing bad news with you. Talk about a breakdown.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the def- that's the definition of where. Whoa, what happened? But I'm even, I'm talking about that in conjunction with the with the idea of a CEO saying something insensitive or something that's wrong, and not wanting to, I guess, come across as incompetent. And so covering his or her or their tracks. And that becomes even worse. Uh, or doubling down just because they feel like, you know, it's like the whole, you know, bully in, in middle school syndrome where I don't want to look weak. So I'm just going to keep saying things I don't mean. And all, all, the, all those things play out in, in the media and in, in the government and in the CEOs and in the companies. And it's interesting when I see that from an outside perspective. But when I talk to clients that I have, you know, they often said, well, if I did that, I would have lost my, my presence, my status, my, my ability to lead, and my respect. And that's an interesting mindset to me because I don't see it that way,
0: but I know that that's ingrained in people. Right, but what you're saying is exactly why, it's, you're precisely speaking into why I consider courage as one of the three vectors of conscious leadership. That's exactly, I mean, you are, that, that is exactly right. It takes courage to move against the quote grain right to speak up to commit and to care it takes courage and courage is walking towards what you'd rather run away from so i don't want to say something to the to my boss i want to run away and 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 i could be the the senior vice president talking to my ceo right i don't want to say something because i don't want to be humiliated or i you know i don't want to be wrong i don't want to look stupid i don't want to be rejected i don't want to be in the out group and so i don't And so when I don't do that, I capitulate to my fear. And by the way, every time we capitulate to our fear, we feel less vibrant, less vibrant. We feel more depressed because that's what happens when we capitulate to our fear. We we give up our energy. You know, fear is the gatekeeper to power. Fear is the gatekeeper to power. And I don't mean power over people, I just mean your own sense of energy and aliveness. Think about the last time you had to do something that scared the bejesus out of you, you went ahead and did it, That when you were done doing it, you felt both drained and incredibly alive, powerful. Yeah. Fear is a gatekeeper to power, and I think that leaders without power are um, not very effective. And I don't mean power over people, I mean their own personal power. So yes, next time that you're in a meeting and somebody says something, that you have a fairly good idea that there's a different way of seeing it or a different way of approaching it, or maybe it's wrong. The courage to speak up is a, is, is, is a gift not only to yourself for the power that you have, but it's rare. I mean, I've been with hundreds of teams in hundreds of different settings. It's the rare case. Let me say it differently. If I'm thinking that something is awry, something could be better, other people are thinking it too. That's true. It's rare, it's rare that I'm the only one that sees it differently. That happens, but it's not really the case. Usually I am experiencing what others in the room are experiencing too. So the courage to speak up isn't just for my own personal power, but it's in a way to really awaken the whole team to be able to take the right action. So that we're not, you know, taking sort of ineffective action, which is what I call breakdown. And again, how many meetings have been lost? Because in, in lost, meaning useless, pointless meetings have, have we sat in? Because we went along to get along, and we didn't say what needed to be said. And I'm I'm talking about each person who's listening to this. There's no other. Who are we gonna wait for? Other somebody? You know? Because this is what I hear a lot of times. Well, somebody should have said something. Who the hell is that's, that somebody?
2: Yeah, I know. That's the, who is that that's,
0: somebody? That's who's always ethical the- being. <laughs>
2: Uh, no, sorry, but, but it happens even, I'm, I'm not a parent, but I know as a son, and you, you could probably speak to this as a father, is, you know, when things happen, and, you know, as a kid, I'd be like, I don't want to tell my mom or dad I'm going to be in trouble, and then something happens and it gets bigger the, than you expected, your mom and dad will be, will be like, why didn't you say something? Like, we could have avoided this if you just said something, and then... You know, I would say, well, you know, last time I said something, you made it this way, and you, you know, I got in trouble, so I didn't want to get in trouble. And that courage or that fear of um, not wanting to, to to be, I guess, be hurt or be seen as as somewhat weak or as incompetent is something that runs from childhood up the gamut to to adulthood,
0: and it's something we never lose if we if we are not aware of it. We, uh, never we never lose. We never lose it. I don't, I'm not proposing that we lose it. That's why I said the idea of being fearless is not. is a, is a non-starter. That's right. The- you,
2: you, you do have that distinction. Yeah, you don't have that distinction. But the, the idea of not actually being courageous enough to speak, even though you're afraid, is something that um, I guess people don't train for enough, if
0: if, if you will. They don't train for, and I think that um, to the point that you made at the beginning, right, difference, right, difference, and, and we don't want to be different because different is dangerous. So so there's two dimensions of different, right? One is we don't want to accept the difference from others, right, Because if, because it's going to have to stretch me beyond my comfort zone. Similarly, I don't want to be different from my group because I want to be part of the group and on the in-group. And so, you know, to be the person in the meeting saying, wait, I have a different position on this is a big deal. It's a courageous act, and it's an act of... Sort of conscious leadership, and I—I'll give you a really, you know, I—I I, I teach all my clients this, and I—I I, I write this, you know, I wrote this in my previous book, the Four Virtues of a Leader. I think I bring it back into my new book as well because it's so central. This this simple practice for cultivating courage, because it, it's so it's so central. So my my take on courage is that, uh, and I did a, a TED talk a few years ago on courage as well, um, and I think I I described that same methodology there, but. You know, I, I talk about his feel, face, and embrace. So I'm sitting in a meeting. I'm starting to hear something that's going sideways, and I'm thinking, Ah, you know, I'm af- I want to do something, but I'm afraid to speak up. If I speak up, you know, Mike is just going to shoot me down. I'm going to look like an idiot. Ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't say anything. But I'm aware that I really do want to be courageous in this moment. So the first thing is is not cognitively, oh, pump myself up. I think that this this cognitive approach of just overcome the fear with positive self talk is is a is a, is, is a limited proposition. I think what's more powerful is to use the techniques from meditation, mindfulness, and presence, right? So the first thing is to feel it. In other words, in that meeting, in that moment, I take three breaths and I notice my stomach is churning like mad. I don't know why they call it butterflies. I have bats flying like crazy, blind, dark creatures. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> butterflies sound so cute. And it's never butterflies in my stomach. Um, but the first thing I do is I feel it. I feel my stomach. I feel sort of you know, the tension around my collar, kind of the heat, the little tingling in my hands. Because guess what? As soon as I've done that, that's already an act of courage because we'd rather not feel that sensation. That's what we want to run away from. That's that sensation of fear in the body. So feel it. That's a first act of courage. Then face it. I can feel I can feel it. Then I face it. I turn towards it, right? Rather than running from it, I face it. And I say, hey, what's going on here? And I realize in short order, if I'm going to say something, I articulate this to myself, I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm afraid to, uh, that I'm going to be rejected and humiliated. Now, guess what? as soon as you articulate what you're afraid of it diminishes the impact on your system this is now this is now neurologically demonstrable with fmri functional magnetic resonance imaging they can show that when somebody articulates their fear state it already diminishes it in their body so feel it right two three breaths this is what's going on in my body face it, turn towards it, and give it a name, actually, you know. Then I say embrace it, which is the first thing I do is write down on a piece of paper, here's what I want to say, two bullets, and then step towards it, right? Embrace means move towards it. So I'm physically connecting with it, I'm cognitively connecting with it, and now I'm going to take some action.
2: I love it. Articulate what you're afraid of. Eric Kaufman, look at that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Well, I, I, I want to transition here to... It is part of the interview. I usually end my interview this way, but I, I just feel like it's a good segue. I often say use your difference to make a difference. And I ask my guest the same question. Um, the question, my mission statement reframed as a question. So Eric, how do you use your difference to make a
0: difference? So my, 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 my mission and passion is to sharpen the minds and broaden the hearts of leaders. And so I use my difference of, um, of culture and perspective and experience to uh, sharpen the mind, to help people understand more clearly who they are, what they are, and what's going on around them, and to broaden mm-hmm. the heart, to connect more lovingly with themselves, with other people, and with spaceship Earth.
2: Wow. Okay. That's well said.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Man. <laughs> I, I, love
2: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Where can we find out more about you and your book, and how can we support you?
0: Yeah. Thanks. The 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 new book is leadership breakdown and LeadershipBreakdown.com. If you go there right now, it's up. Uh, you can actually download the 10 top mistakes that lead to, to leadership breakdown and put in your, um, put in your email and, and I'll notify you when the book comes out, which should be in the spring. And so, um, and that, that would be, you know, I, my company is, uh, sagatica.com. You can learn more about me there. Um, but I'm really, what I'm most passionate about is wanting people to go to the dot and, uh, and start up taking, you know, the 10 top mistakes as an immediate gift that you get for free. And you can already see w- where you can get better and stop the breakdowns by noticing what's wrong what what you're doing. That is unproductive. Um, and also preparing for my book coming out. I'm, you know, it's, it's, a uh, um, you know, how do I use my difference to make a difference? I mean, the book is one of those things. I really want people to understand how to awaken to being a conscious leader and stop the breakdowns in themselves, in their teams, and all around us.
2: Oh, absolutely. And and I'll make sure I put all this in show notes and, you know, we'll we'll definitely make sure we, we'll get as many people as we can to your book. But if you're trying to figure it out, to use wisdom, love, and courage to understand how to ensure that you don't have leadership breakdown, Definitely check out Eric Kaufman's website and we'll put that in show notes. But the book is called Leadership Breakdown: The Symptoms, Solutions, and Resources to Lead Beyond the Breakdown. So looking forward to, to releasing this episode
0: and um, just sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tayo. It's a real pleasure. I, I love your energy and your presence.
2: Ah uh, well, thank you. The pleasure is mine. That's a great compliment coming from you. So I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate that. And uh till next time, ladies, gentlemen, and gender non-binary individuals, use your difference.